work to host Thanksgiving. Uh, you spend weeks figuring out who's coming. Will your kids make it? Will they not be able to make it? Will they be bringing their kids? Will they be bringing any friends? Uh, who knows how many people are coming? Uh, you're going to have a turkey, but then there's you know, like you know 25 different side dishes that you might uh, come up with and have for that particular Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, and you're going to need lots of butter. You always need lots and lots of butter. You can never have enough butter. The days leading up to Thanksgiving are so chaotic. You're trying to figure out, again, who's coming, and there's so much shopping, there's so much cleaning, you're counting your tables and chairs to be sure you have enough seating for everybody. Uh, and then no doubt on the morning of Thanksgiving, you're gonna have to run out for more stuff because you ran out of butter. So you gotta go get more butter. Uh, well, finally, everybody is seated, everybody's in place. Dinner is ready and it's time to eat. And after all that cleaning, all that prep, all that cooking, uh, dinner is over in about 20 minutes. Uh, and then it's time for more cleaning, uh, more prep, because dessert has to be put out in a few minutes. Uh, there'll be more football, and then later on, there'll be a second plate of turkey, no doubt. Uh, so if you've hosted Thanksgiving, you know that you probably need to sleep for two days after Thanksgiving dinner is over. Well, if Thanksgiving dinner is a lot, uh, Passover dinner, is really a lot too. Uh, not because of the amount of food, it's not the amount of food, it's the ritual, the preparation, everything that goes into a Passover dinner. It's like 10 times or maybe even 100 times uh, Thanksgiving in terms of uh, preparing. The first thing you had to do was to find a place. Uh, Josephus says that uh, perhaps two million people uh, came to Jerusalem for the Passover and all these people needed a place to celebrate. So where were they going to go? They would have to find a room. And once you found a place uh, to have that Passover, uh, the prepping was beyond anything that we've ever done for any Thanksgiving because of how that room had to be prepared, because it had to follow God's precise instructions. Now, these are God's precise instructions, right? Like we reach a point where we say, it's clean enough. Uh, but for God, uh, you know, clean enough is not clean enough. It's got to be perfect. So uh, this is what the disciples were, were prepping for this last Passover. Uh, of course, Jesus knew that this was his last Passover, and so this Passover was going to be different than any Passover that had preceded it ever before. Uh, the rituals, of course, were the same, but because Jesus knew that this was the last Passover, he was going to say things, and he was going to do things at this Passover that had never been said or done before. And he was going to transform this last Passover into the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, as he spent these uh, few last solemn hours with his disciples, uh, he would be crucified only a few hours later. Uh, so we're going to talk about this passage in three different parts today. The preparation for the Passover, which is verses 12 to 16. Uh, then the celebration of the Passover, that's verses 17 to 21. And then the institution of the Lord's Supper, that's verses 22 to 26. So preparation for the Passover, uh, verses 12 to 16. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go to prepare the pat for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a pitcher of, a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he himself will show you a large upstairs room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples left and came to the city, 
and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, the first thing, the most obvious thing to notice is Jesus's omniscience in this entire uh, first few verses here, right? Jesus knows everything, and Jesus was not leaving anything to chance with this very last and most important Passover. Uh, so, Uh, Mark says that Jesus sent two disciples. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us that those disciples were Peter and John, and they were to go into the city. Uh, And they would recognize the man with the pitcher because uh, men didn't usually carry the water pitchers. That was usually uh, a job reserved for women. So it would be like Jesus uh, would be going in, uh, telling them to go into town and look for a guy riding a unicycle and juggling bowling pins. You know, they would not have missed that guy because it would have been so obvious uh, because he, was, he would have stood out because he was doing a function that they don't ordinarily do, that men don't ordinarily do. Well, how could Jesus know this? How could he know that they would go in and, and that they would find this man carrying a pitcher? Well, the question answers itself, right? Jesus is God. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows everything. And he knows everything because he planned it in advance with God from the very beginning. Now, we can tend to gloss over these verses because really they're, they're the run-up to the Last Supper, uh, to, to the institution of the, of the, uh, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so sometimes we tend to gloss over these verses. But can you imagine being Peter and John and, and hearing Jesus say this, you know, go into the city and, and you'll find a man who's carrying a pitcher of water. You follow him. And, and for, for these two to find everything exactly as Jesus said they would find it would have to be absolutely astounding to them and once again confirm uh, his deity to them as if they needed any more confirmation. Well, they found this man uh, and this man did lead them to an upper room. Uh, to celebrate the Passover. And tradition holds that this room, uh, which is called the Cenacle, is the place where the Last Supper was held. You can go and visit this place today. It's in uh, the compound of David's tomb on the upper floor there. And you can walk around this room uh, and you can uh, see, imagine what it would be like to have held the last Passover right in that room. Well, on the first day of unleavened bread means the day of Passover. Uh, the first day of unleavened bread, Passover, uh, Nisan 14 on the Hebrew calendar. Uh, Passover is the feast that commemorates uh, the hasty dinner that they had before they were going to have to flee uh, to leave Egypt uh, once Pharaoh gave them uh, the go-ahead, which would be short-lived. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the week-long celebration that followed Passover, which commemorated their exodus out of um, Egypt through the Red Sea uh, and then into the wilderness. So uh, where we are now on the calendar is that it's Thursday morning, a Thursday morning of Passion Week when the disciples go out and they, they follow this man and they prepare the room and there was plenty to do to prepare. So I just want us to, to think about the preparations, think about all that goes into this Passover meal. They had to prepare the room first. And as I said, there couldn't be a crumb anywhere in the entire room of leaven. Uh, leaven is a, is, a, is, a, is a material like yeast, uh, which is used to raise the bread. Uh, and that was considered unclean. So they were not allowed to have any of that in the house. Uh, So everything, every speck of anything with potential uncleanness would have to be taken outside of the room and it it would have to be carefully burned according to certain regulations which kept the room from being defiled. So first the room and then the vessels. There were lots of vessels, cups and utensils, 
all of that had to be prepared according to certain rituals. Uh, metal dishes had to be cleansed by immersing them in boiling water and then rinsed in cold water. Uh, iron vessels had to be uh, made red hot and then rinsed the same way. Uh, you couldn't use clay uh, vessels unless they were brand new because clay is permeable, which means that it absorbs uncleanness and you can't get it out. Uh, so unless you had a brand new clay dish, that could not be used. And even if you did use a clay dish, it had to go through so many rituals before that could be used, uh, dipping it three times in running water and then consecrated by a special prayer. So the room, the vessels, they had to prepare the food and the drink. Uh, on the evening of the 13th, the night before Passover, uh, the man who was making the bread would have to go out uh, and draw water uh, and, and consecrate the water by saying these ritual prayers, chanting them over and over again to, to make the bread. And then the lamb you know about, they would have to take the lamb. It had to be perfect. It had to be unblemished. They then had to take that lamb uh, to the priests who would uh, put their stamp of approval on it, say, yes, this is an unblemished lamb. You can sacrifice this lamb. And if it was not, uh, if, if, it, if it had a blemish, they'd have to go buy another lamb that, that the priest did approve. If it was approved, they'd have to slaughter this lamb according to certain prescribed rituals uh, and only between sunset and when the stars came out, so a very small window of time. Then the lambs had to be roasted according to certain prescribed rituals, certain parts given to the priest, offered as a burnt offering, and then the rest they brought home to eat according, again, to the prescribed rituals. They had to bring the bread, they had to bring the wine, they had to bring the lamb, they had to bring the paste of crushed fruit, uh, a, or a, a, bitter, uh, a plate of bitter herbs. All this was part of the Passover meal. Now, Mark, you know, glazes over all this, right? He says, uh, Jesus told them, go and prepare the Passover meal for us. Uh, and so I'm not even doing half justice to all that was required in order for them to prepare for this Passover. It had to be meticulously prepared according to every aspect of the regulations of God's law because God is holy and he demands perfect obedience and cleanliness. And so the reason I'm telling you all this is because Jesus said in Matthew 5:17, do not think that I came to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. So, if Jesus planned to offer himself as the final, ultimate, perfect sacrifice once and for all for sin, then he would have this final Passover meal with his disciples according to the strictest interpretation of the law so that he would fulfill the law and not abolish it. And so that is what Jesus did, and that is what the Passover was about, and that's how these apostles prepared it so that it would be perfect in per perfect fulfillment of the law. So the preparation for the Passover. Now the celebration of the Passover, uh, verses 12 to 16, 17 to 21. And when it came, uh, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table, and eating, Jesus said, uh, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. But he said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who dips bread with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is going away just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. 
So our days turn over on, at midnight, right? It becomes the next day at midnight. Their day turned over to the next day at 6 p.m. So Thursday morning, they're prepping. At 6 p.m., it becomes Friday, and that is the day of Passover. Uh, so now, Friday, 6 p.m., the beginning of the day, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they came to the upper room. And the seating arrangement was not like we see in Da Vinci's The Last Supper. You know, you've, you've seen this painting. It's a very famous painting. That's not how it was. Uh, this is how it would have been. There would have been a square or a rectangular table, and it would have been close to the floor. Uh, and Jesus and his disciples would have been uh, laying down. That's why they call it reclining at table. This is what it looks like. You lay down uh, and you rest on your left elbow uh, with your head toward the table and your feet away from the table. Uh, so that's what it would have been like. And so uh, Jesus uh, would have been the host, and so he would have sat in the middle on that uh, row with three uh, people. Uh, and then the rest of the seats were all available. They were all up for grabs. Uh, and we know that the disciples were very concerned, right, about which one of us will be the greatest. They had more than one fight about that. Uh, Jesus told them, I'm going to, to, to Jerusalem to uh, suffer at the, at the hands of men, be crucified and killed, and a fight breaks out among them about which one of them is going to be the greatest. So uh, it just goes to show you human nature. Well, uh, the placement of the disciples around this table would be very important. It would reflect the places of honor. And since they thought that Jesus was about to usher in the kingdom, it's very likely to, to think that, that they would believe that the places that they would uh, assume at this table would reflect the places that they would receive in uh, the government uh, that Jesus would establish, this new kingdom that was coming. So it was very important uh, to where Jesus was going to put each one of these disciples. And so uh, we have to think about who got the places of honor at this Passover meal. So think about that, and we'll come back to it in a minute. As soon as the disciples were seated, uh, John's gospel tells us that uh, this is when uh, Jesus got up and he girded himself and, and he washed the disciples' feet. And incredibly, Judas was among those whose feet Jesus washed. Can you imagine? Uh, Mark apparently skipped the, the foot washing episode because he was very much interested in, in Jesus's betrayal and in the institution of the Lord's Supper. So he skipped over the foot washing. So we will too. Uh, let's talk about Judas's betrayal. Uh, when Jesus predicted in verse 18 that one of them would betray him, obviously Jesus knew all along who it was. He said, truly, I say to you that one of you here will deny me or betray me, one who is eating with me. And of course, they all denied it. But I imagine myself sitting in that room, and, and I wonder if you imagine yourself sitting in that room. Uh, would you confidently know that there's no way it's me who would, who would betray him? And you'd be looking around at everybody else saying, I wonder which one of you guys it is who's going to do it. Or would you be examining yourself, wondering, do I have this in me to betray my Lord and my Savior? Could I, could I do it? Could I really betray my Lord and Savior? And I think as we examine ourselves thinking about such a thing, we can't know what we will do unless we are put in a situation like that where our lives are on the line. If we were taken by terrorists and they said, uh, you will renounce your faith in Jesus Christ and you will call him a fraud or we will execute you summarily, uh, what would you do? Uh, I pray that each one of us would say, 
Jesus is my Lord, and if I have to die for it, I have to die for it. Uh, but we never know what we will do uh, until we actually have to stand there. So his disciples were probably, uh, you know, professing their loyalty, uh, but checking their hearts at the same time, uh, praying that it wouldn't be them. But even Judas had the gall. He had the gall, the temerity to ask, Jesus, it's not me, is it? Uh, even though he knew it was him, he had already made a deal with the Pharisees. We saw that last week. Uh, but he wanted to know, uh, not, you know, he knew, obviously, but he wanted to know if Jesus knew. And he wanted to know if the other disciples knew, if his plot had been uncovered already. Uh, and so uh, Jesus answered, it is one of the 12, the one who dips his bread with me in the bowl. So thinking about the placement of where Jesus put these uh, apostles. Jesus ha Judas had to be near uh, Jesus uh, to dip his bread in the bowl with him, right? Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so from what the Gospels tell us, it's pretty clear that, that Jesus put Judas on his left, the place of the most high honor. We might think that the place on the right would be the highest honor. Actually, the place on his left is the place of highest honor. And here's how we, we know that. They would be reclining at table like uh, we see in the picture above. Uh, and John's gospel says that when, when uh, Jesus announced that one of them would betray uh, Jesus, Peter wasn't close enough to ask um, Jesus himself, so he motions to John. Uh, you ask him, John, you ask him who it is. And so uh, John's gospel says that John leaned back into Jesus's bosom. So he could only do that if he was on Jesus's right side. So he would be uh, this guy, leaning back into Jesus's bosom to ask the question. And then he says, it's the one who I uh, hand this piece of bread to in John's gospel, or in Mark's gospel, it says the one who dips his hand in the bowl with me. So the only way uh, that Judas could either be handed a piece of bread or dip his hand in the same bowl as Jesus would be if he was the guy on the other side, on the left side, the position of most high honor at the table. Isn't that incredible? Knowing what Jesus knew, knowing that, that Judas had already made a deal with the devil, so to speak, going to the Pharisees, arranging to betray him for money, uh, knowing that he was about to leave, uh, and go put this plan in motion, uh, Jesus offers Judas the place of highest honor. Why would he do that? Why would he put Jesus, uh, Judas in the place of highest honor? I think it was Jesus's last ditch effort. Um, here is my love, Judas. Here is my grace. Here is my forgiveness. I offer it to you a final time. Will you accept my love and grace and forgiveness, or will you reject your Messiah? Remember, the distributing of the bread at Passover was a very important part of the meal. Uh, it reminded people of God's promise to provide salvation to them, to, that, that there would be a coming Messiah. Uh, and by receiving the bread, each person acknowledged his own uh, sinful state and in God's grace and saving them uh, from their days in Egypt. And, and so it's meaningful that, that Jesus gave this piece of bread to Judas first, uh, for everybody to see, for Judas to have to make a decision. And the Gospels say that, that Judas received the bread, but none of the Gospels say that he ate it. And so he rejected Jesus, and John says that Satan entered Judas at this moment. Well, right after uh, Judas took the bread and Satan entered him, then Judas left to betray Jesus. 
Uh, and John adds, and it was night. Uh, not just physical night, but spiritual night. Judas's heart was now controlled by Satan. It was dark, and it was bent on evil. Um, it's, it can make your skin crawl to, to think about the spiritual battle that is going on and, and all the demonic forces that are at work here in making this event happen, leading up to this event. Uh, so uh, Jesus left to betray uh, the Messiah, uh, who would have been his Lord and Savior had he simply said yes. And, and Jesus predicted his own uh, death and Judas's punishment in verse 21. For the Son of Man is going away, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And so as I mentioned last week, uh, this is where we see the intersection of divine uh, sovereignty and human responsibility. God and Jesus planned this event from before the foundation of the world, that Jesus would die in Jerusalem at a particular hour and that Judas would be uh, the one who set these events in motion. So we might ask, how is it fair then? How is it fair that God pins this punishment on Judas for something that God planned in advance? Well, nowhere does it say uh, anything other than that Judas was acting in accordance with his own will. Uh, Judas chose to betray Jesus. He was not forced to do it, even though God ordained it. And that is the uh, intersection, uh, the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God held him accountable for the choices that he made. Now, none of the other disciples understood what was going on. They, they thought Judas was leaving, uh, you know, maybe to buy some food for the poor. They had no idea why he left. But after he was gone, that left Jesus and the other 11 disciples. And the sequence of events uh, that would lead now to uh, Jesus's crucifixion were irrevocably set in motion by uh, what had happened at this point. And so Jesus had precious little time left with his disciples. Now, it's at this point where John uh, inserts the upper room discourse. Uh, Jesus's final instructions to his apostles, John verses 14 to 17. Uh, but Mark didn't include any of that because his purpose now is to focus on the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so that's what we'll do. Verses 22 to 26. While they were eating, he took some bread and after blessing, after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." So when the disciples came to this Passover meal, they expected to be celebrating the Passover. And of course, that's what they did. They celebrated the Passover. But Jesus turned this Passover into something new. He turned it into the Lord's Supper. Now, bread and wine, of course, were important parts of the Passover meal. The unleavened bread uh, symbolized this great haste. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, so the bread was unleavened. They had to have this Passover meal, leave and get out of Egypt. Uh, so this is a symbol of God's provision, especially reminiscent also of their time in the desert, 40 years in the desert, and God provided the bread, the manna, for them to survive on while they wandered for 40 years. 
wine was a symbol of joy. Uh, as far back as the story of Abraham and Melchizedek, uh, when Abraham went out and conquered and came back, Melchizedek set forth the celebration which included wine. Uh, Psalm 104.15 says that wine gladdens a man's heart. So the bread and wine were important parts of the Passover meal. And the lamb, of course, was the most important part of the Passover meal because uh, the shed blood of the lamb is what atoned for the people's sins. So Jesus is going through the Passover meal, and up to this point, everything is just as it always had been at every other Passover meal they had, that they had ever attended. All rituals followed. But now verse 22 represents a departure from the standard Passover meal. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And the disciples were like, whoa, what's going on here? This is not written here. This is not what we do on the regular Passover thing. It's not prescribed. Uh, it was conducted Passover according to a very strict ritual. And so almost everything that was said and done was, was, was prescribed. It had to be done a certain way. And so the disciples would have been stunned by this departure uh, from prescribed rituals. Nothing like this had ever been done, ever been said in 1,500 years of keeping the Passover meal. And so uh, Jesus gave new meaning to each element of this Passover, where the unleavened bread symbolized separation uh, from Egypt and, and from sin and from false religion uh, and a new life of holiness. Now the bread would perpetually represent Jesus's body, which was to be broken for them. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. The cup also had special significance too. And now he's saying about the cup, this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many. Now the covenant that he's referencing there is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 that promised the replacement of the Mosaic covenant with a new covenant. And partakers of the new covenant would uh, have the forgiveness of sins. Uh, but under the Old Testament law, the only way to have forgiveness of sins was by the shedding of the blood of bulls or goats or lambs or whatever. But now Jesus said that this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for forgiveness of sins, for forgiveness of sins. The word for uh, an easily missed word means on behalf of, instead of, in place of. And so Jesus is saying, this is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. I have given my blood for your blood. I am dying in your place instead of you. I'm paying the penalty for your sins that you could never pay. And so Jesus' upcoming death uh, inaugurated this promised new covenant. The Mosaic covenant ended with Jesus' death. Uh, no longer would the sacrifice of bulls and goats be required for the atonement of sins anymore because God forgives our sins when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when we place our trust in him, we receive forgiveness. So uh, Jesus's blood replaced the blood of goats and bulls and lambs to be offered at Passover every year. And so in every aspect, Jesus transformed this last Passover meal into something new, into the representation of the new covenant. Now, this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper at Grace Redeemer Community Church every single Sunday. Now, the reason why 
Many churches only celebrate it periodically, whether it's monthly or quarterly or, or whatever, however they choose to do it, is because there's a risk involved in celebrating the Lord's Supper every week. Anytime you do anything week after week after week, it, it can become rote, it can become ritual, it can lose its importance as we become so familiar with it. That's the danger, and so that's why uh, some churches don't do it every week, and that's a very legitimate concern, because the more you do something, the more familiar and the less sacred it can become. Now, I pray that that never happens here, and I trust that it won't. I pray that this is a very central part of what we do here when we come to the table. Uh, we understand the risk, of course, that it could become ritual and rote, but this is such a central part of what we do, remembering Jesus' sacrifice every week, uh, that we are going to continue to do that because it represents our Christian hope. It represents Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so uh, without it, without the table, uh, without what it represents, there is no hope. And so we, we just want to remember that every week. And I truly believe that by the time we come to that point in the service where we're about to do the table, by the time uh, we've worshipped in song and we've worshipped through the word, that our hearts should be prepared every week uh, to, to receive uh, the elements, even though we do do it every week. So uh, it's a blessing, and it's not an empty ritual, and uh, we want to remember his sacrifice every week, and I hope that you agree with that. I'm sure you do, or else you'd be attending somewhere else. Uh, we love the Lord's Supper here. So uh, Jesus finished this Passover. He finished the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, by saying that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drank it anew in the kingdom of heaven. And this tells us a couple things. One, uh, he knew that his earthly life was coming to an end, right? He knew that he was going to be crucified and killed the next day. His death was imminent. The only reason that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine was because he was going to be killed. But it also tells us that even though Jesus was about to die, he knew there was hope. He knew he was going to rise again. He knew he was going to drink the wine again in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus' death was not the end of the story. He knew he would rise, and we can be confident, too, that Jesus is coming again as he promised, and that there will be a future kingdom for both Jesus and for us, and we will celebrate with him in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' disciples were given that same confidence, not only in these verses, but in the whole upper room discourse that Jesus gave before he departed well, the last thing they did in that room was they sang a hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives. And the hymn that they sung was probably Psalm 118. Uh, Psalm 113 through 118, they're called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. And what they did at the Passover was before the meal, they sung Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. And then after the meal, they sung Psalms 115 through 118, and that concluded the Passover service. So Psalm 118, the last psalm Jesus ever sung before he went out to the Mount of Olives, uh, it has extra significance when we think about Jesus in that upper room, knowing what was ahead of him just in a couple of hours. So let's think about a couple of these verses from Psalm 118 and think about the significance that they have given the context that Jesus was singing them in. Psalm 118, verses 17 to 18, I will not die, but live, and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not turned me over to death. Psalm 118, 22 to 24, a stone 
which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And verses 28 to 29, you are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy is everlasting. Imagine Jesus singing those words just before he was about to go out and be arrested and face all that he was gonna face. I can't imagine the courage it took for Jesus to sing the Hallel and then go out to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane. The entire time he knows that Judas and the whole uh, realm of satanic forces is at work uh, to bring evil against him. But because he did get up and because he did go to the Mount of Olives and he did go to the garden and ultimately because he went to the cross, we now live in the age of the new covenant where Jesus offers salvation to all who believe in him. Now there will be a time when it's too late for us to receive the gift of salvation. And that's either the day that we die if we have not received him before then or the day that Jesus comes if we have not received him before then. Uh, so it would be very wise to anybody within the sound of my voice who is hearing this, if you have not settled your debt with God and said, I have a penalty that I owe for my sin, but I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid that for me and I receive him as my savior, it would be very wise for you to make that decision today. And then you can be sure that you will celebrate and you will drink the wine in the new kingdom with the Lord Jesus. So some applications. The first one is simple. Believe in Jesus for your salvation. Don't be like Judas. You know, Judas looked just like the rest of the apostles, right? He heard the same words that the rest of the apostles heard. He saw all the same miracles that the rest of the apostles saw. But Judas never believed. He never received Jesus as his savior. And so, his life can make us question, right? Uh, we have followed Jesus our whole lives, but have we ever really believed? We, we need to ask ourselves that question. If we're faithful followers, it's one thing to hear his words, but salvation only comes when we receive his words uh, and trust in him as our savior, that he died for our sins. And Jesus knows if we're true followers or if we're imposters like Judas was. Second is this. Check your expectations of Jesus. It seemed that Judas wanted something that Jesus never promised. Uh, he wanted Jesus to start a military coup to overthrow Rome, restore Israel to the glory days that it had under David and Solomon. And when Jesus didn't deliver, as Judas expected, he betrayed him, he turned him over to the chief priests. And so God doesn't always act as we may hope or expect but we have to trust him in all circumstances. God didn't promise us a, a, a perfectly happy, healthy life, a wealthy life. He didn't make those promises to us, but what he did promise us is eternal life uh, for all who believe, even if we suffer in this world. So Judas's example should be uh, something that strengthens our resolve to follow God, even when God doesn't give us exactly what we want. And then finally, Celebrate this Lord's Supper with all your heart. Let's never, never allow our weekly remembering of him uh, to become ho-hum, uh, to become routine or ritual. Uh, even today, as we take the Lord's Supper today, let's recommit ourselves 
uh, this week where we take the elements to confess our sin and to give thanks for Jesus's sacrifice on the cross for us. We can leave here today knowing our salvation is secure and knowing that we have eternity to celebrate in heaven with him because of his immense sacrifice for us. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for what you've done here. Uh, Lord, these disciples who uh, followed you, uh, they really didn't have an understanding of what was going on as it was happening. And it's only now on this side of the cross that we understand what was going on in that upper room. Lord, uh, we can't even begin to imagine as you agonized through the upper room and then what you would suffer in the Garden of Gethsemane and then what you would suffer on the cross, uh, going through all that you went through so that we could be saved, Lord. We thank you for it. We give you thanks. We give you praise, honor, and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.